choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Good morning and welcome to LifePoint. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue our series entitled United Together for the Gospel. We're talking about how the Gospel unites us in all things and understanding that unity fuels God's people for kingdom mission in the world. I want to begin this morning by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for us. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. As we come to this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 5 really highlights what I would call the top of the church's IIR list. The issues that we like to ignore and to reject. You see, 1 Corinthians 5 provides a case study of church discipline. It's not a comprehensive treatment of the topic, but it's a right response for us to open sin in the church today. And Matthew 18, another passage that gives us guidelines for how the church should practice discipline among the congregation, it it, it helps us to understand that discipline should begin long before what we see occur in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Because once that is forced upon the church, it must come before the whole church. And when a Christian sees a brother or a sister in sin, loving discipline should already be active individually in personal relationships before it has to become before the whole congregation. And so we see that church discipline begins in personal relationships that are committed to Christian obedience first. Church discipline that is faithful to the whole counsel of God involves several stages, all that are designed to produce faith-driven repentance and reconciliation. But when faith is rejected and hardness of heart remains, it always culminates before the whole church where the authority is seated. Problems never go away when they get ignored. And as such, sin cannot be forgiven and sin cannot be cleansed when confession and repentance are not practiced. And so the challenge for us today is simply this, that the American church wants to reject any authority or any claim of authority other than that which is individual. But the scriptural authority brings us to consider this passage today for our own well-being, for our congregation at LifePoint. And what I want you to walk away with today is this, that the church practices discipline in spiritual covenant in order to guard the unity of Christian fellowship. The church practices discipline in spiritual covenant to guard the unity of Christian fellowship. Now, as I did a couple of weeks ago when I talked about leadership in the church, I also want to do today. I want to offer a disclaimer to you. If you believe that church discipline is just another opportunity for pastors or for the church to beat up on people, then I, I want to beg of you today to listen to this message. Listen not out of personal experience or or personal pain from past hurts. But listen today from the Spirit as He illumines the Scriptures for us. Listen not because what the church has done has been so often right, but listen because without corrections, we lack a God-ordained practice to strengthen the church for our witness and ultimately for our gospel impact in the world. You see, church discipline guards against any individual ruling or ruining the church while all live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And a return to biblical leadership in the church depends upon reinstating a biblical church discipline within the congregation. And so what Paul does in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is that he aims directly at the big problem in the Corinthian church. Sexual immorality. This was a general term for any form of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And in the Corinthian church, there was a man who was having sex with his father's wife. Now, we don't know exactly who the woman was, but we do know that, that it was not the man's mother or Paul would have stated that fact. Neither does Paul directly address the man. But we do know that this was a relationship of incestuous sin. And we know it was strongly regarded as wrong because, as Paul will say, not even the pagans or the unbelievers considered this practice to be normal or acceptable. 
Regardless, the Corinthian church was making allowance for a sinful practice that even the culture itself considered unacceptable. And so Paul pinpoints the real problem in this situation. It's the church's response to the man's sin. Paul says, and you are arrogant. They're puffed up with pride, with self-conceit. Their arrogance has rationalized why this man's sin, that not even pagans accept as normal, has been accepted by the church. It's problematic for the church when people live in open, unrepentant sin. But a much bigger problem for the church is when Christians accept or, or tolerate open sin because they've arrogantly justified it. Arrogance is always sinful and self-serving. Whether it accepts sin in order to justify personal transgressions or just whether it tries to avoid having to deal with sin. And it's been said that pride is the mother of all sin. Giving birth to, nurturing, and coddling every form of wickedness. Paul goes on to say, ought you not to have mourned? You see, mourning, not arrogant acceptance, is a Christian's right response to sin. Christians respond to sin in accordance to what God's Word calls it, death. That's why mourning is an appropriate response to it. When Christians respond in arrogance, we deny God's Word and we condemn the world to justify the separation from those sinners while condoning sin within the church itself. And Paul directs the Corinthians to remove this man from the church. You see, when Christians choose to live in open sin rather than gospel obedience, the church is responsible to relate to them in their sin to demonstrate the truth that accords with their living. Paul states that by the Spirit, He is present with them in spirit. You see, authority in the church doesn't arrive or leave with an individual. Paul pronounced judgment not by his own authority or by his own definition, but by confessing what God's Word had already stated in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, authority in the church... When authority remains rather in the church when God's word is confessed and obeyed through the leading power of God's Holy Spirit. And so he directs the Corinthian church to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, without doubt, this is a very difficult phrase to understand and surely even a subsequent action to take. However, there are a couple of things that we can say about it that help us understand what it means for us today. Paul states there should be a notable, noticeable exclusion from the church in the distinct activities of Christian communion. Specifically, the Lord's Supper and likely the meals or, or what we would consider the, the larger community fellowship where Christians gather for explicit gospel 
ministry. So when Paul said, deliver this man over and remove him, he was saying that he shouldn't gather with them in public worship. He shouldn't be among them in the smaller gatherings of the meals and specifically partaking of the Lord's Supper. He shouldn't benefit from the blessings of Christian ministry among the fellowship because he's living in denial of the very gospel and the spirit that establishes that ministry. He does say that every person is not to shun or to isolate the man in individual encounters outside the church, but what he is telling the church is that neither are they to continue relating to this man in denial of his sin as if nothing had happened. You see, exclusion from Christian ministry returns this man to Satan's domain, to the worldly domain where Satan is currently ruling. And in so doing, to hopefully recognize the the vainness and the vileness of his practices that oppose the word of Christ. And in so doing, entrusting his eternal soul only to God. You see, friends, the aim of all gospel ministry seeks to destroy the flesh, that sinfulness in us, and to further entrust our lives to God's kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. And there is a limit in gospel ministry at which the people of God can do no more. And at this point, it is sin for us to strive on without ultimate trust in God. When the church's gospel labors fail to produce a repentant turn in a brother or a sister, the Spirit leads to turn the reality of the offending person's life over to the eternal purposes of God's faithful hand. Paul explains that discipline provides a demonstration of Christ's purifying sacrifice He uses the illustration of dough and of leaven. And he says that the whole lump of dough is affected by the smallest amount of leaven. And the congregation must act to remove the leaven of sin that is among them. This action guards the whole congregation in accordance with the work that Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, accomplished on the cross for salvation. In other words... The congregation's discipline reflects the atoning work of Christ to cleanse them from sin. And when the church refuses to practice discipline by faith in Jesus' atoning work, all ministry and all worship is infected with the leaven of malice and evil because that is the leaven of our flesh, of our sin, that affects and infects us. But Jesus' atonement applied through discipline among the congregation brings sincerity and truth to the church's worship and to the church's ministry. And then finally, Paul clarifies that his instruction should not be misapplied to pervert the church's mission. You see, these instructions don't guide the church in how to relate to all the people of the world. For Christians don't judge the world because it already lives under God's judgment. That's what Paul is saying. 
And any time that we try to do this, it leads to sectarianism where we can somehow separate ourselves from the world. Sectarianism, though, that separates Christians from relating to the world is never a faithful expression of gospel mission. Christians judge fellow Christians within the church as an act of faithful confession in accordance to God's Word. In other words, we call sin what God's Word says it is. The very Word that we, give, or that we gain our authority from and the very Word by which we are commanded to obey and live by in faith. And church discipline aims to carry out in practical application what Christ's sacrifice on the cross eternally accomplished for those who believe in Him. And when we strive to do more, we disobey God by substituting our own wisdom and our own efforts instead of His Spirit and His Word in gospel ministry. But when we do less, we deny the soul's eternal worth and any need to entrust our soul to God's care at all. You see, church discipline serves as a congregational confession that the church is limited in what we can know and what we can do to discern the state of a person's eternal salvation. Friends, one quick application I want to make for us at this point is this, that people in the church who remain rebellious and hard in open sin, should be removed from the church for the sake of the church because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. And this is a principle that, that can be applied personally as well for people and practices that repeatedly influence you to turn away or to walk away from faithfully obeying Jesus should be ruthlessly purged from your life. And this principle should be applied comprehensively, including how we think and what we believe, or rather in our confessions and in our convictions. It should be applied in how we relate to and how we treat other peoples, and in the attitudes towards and the affections towards. And it should be applied in how we act, in the very actions. For if we do not appropriately apply the gospel to our lives and to one another, will only end up as the Corinthian church had done, separating themselves from the world out of a sense of arrogance and being better in them and coddling and allowing sin throughout the congregation because they had justified it in their own wisdom and understanding. Faithful church discipline begins in the personal life of every Christian. Acknowledging that we cannot grow and mature on our own, but only by the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work throughout the congregation. And so I remind us today that the church practices discipline in spiritual covenant to guard the unity of Christian fellowship. Now I want to help us today by making four applications that will, will aid us in faithfully aligning our lives and ultimately understanding why it is that the church aligns its practices in the way it does with God's Word. The first application that I offer to you today is this. 
Humble confidence to obey God's word is the church's and every Christian's right response to sin. Not arrogant acceptance that ignores or condones it. I'll repeat that. Our first application today is that humble confidence to obey God's word is the church's and every Christian's right response to sin. And not arrogant acceptance that ignores and condones it. You see, church discipline labors for redemption and reconciliation with God ultimately and His people practically through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is never a time when church discipline is rightfully commissioned to be some kind of sin hunt that sniffs out every occurrence or or rather just an agenda to kick someone out of the church. Church discipline simply applies the gospel to the one who claims to be a Christian and enjoys all the blessings of Christian communion and Christian fellowship, but yet lives unrepentant in sin and disobedience to God's word, thereby denying the very power of the gospel they claim to believe. You see, Compassion towards sin and toward the one who claims Christ but remains in open sin is actually a denial of the cross of Jesus Christ and it's an abomination against what God accomplished on the cross. And so when the church turns a blind eye to sin, we end up justifying actions that even the unbelieving world doesn't accept. Beware, Christian. When you think little of sin, you show greater compassion for the damnable activity and for the damnable sinner than for the innocent Christ that was crucified on the cross. We today are way too comfortable talking about people in a way that destroys them, either through gossip or slander or malice or just evil and envy that we perpetrate with our tongue, either intentionally or unintentionally. But we have no intent to help them or to do good through them or for them with our words. And we are way too silent to speak to someone when they're destroying their lives in open sin. This is a functional and practical denial of the very center of the Christian faith, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the center issue that Paul is getting to with the church at Corinth. Church discipline guards the congregation to remain faithful to God's word. Discipline as a guard is actually put into place before an attack arises. When discipline is put into place and then practiced, every Christian is encouraged to live in humble obedience to God's Word by faith through the power of the Spirit that lives within them. And they know that they have the encouragement and the accountability of the whole congregation to help them. You see, Christians live with a humble confidence in God's Word by the power of the Spirit to act by faith when life moves beyond our control and beyond our own ability. And that's what church discipline demonstrates among the congregation. And so this first application is simple. There is a humble confidence to obey God's Word in the church and even in every Christian's life. 
with a right response to sin and not an arrogant acceptance that ignores or condones it. The second application I want to offer to us today is this. The assembled body of Christ holds authority and responsibility to labor for the redemption of the sinner by disciplining sin. I'll repeat that. The assembled body of Christ, the gathering of the church, holds authority and responsibility to labor for the redemption of the sinner by disciplining sin. The assembled church body, friends, is what holds the biblical spirit-led authority. It is responsible to each person to act faithfully for the whole. Paul takes action since the Corinthian church had obviously chosen that they would not. But he recognizes that his action alone cannot be individual. Rather, as a leader, as an apostle, and in instructing the pastors and the elders, he was required to lead the whole congregation through the process because of the level to which this sin had risen. And this process was the right response to such a sin. Even though they had failed to do this, even though they had failed to feel the necessity for this on their own. And Paul says that's because they were arrogant. The congregation cannot, friends, and the congregation must not relinquish to pastors what God's word places firmly within the congregational realm. Church discipline always aims to guard the purity and the unity of the church by focusing on redemption, not expulsion. But that doesn't mean expulsion never happens. The church cannot tolerate just turning a blind eye to sin that is open among them. You see, Jesus died to conquer our sin. And when Christians live like there's nothing we can do about sin, we bear a false testimony about what Christ's death means for us. Discipline that culminates in removing a person from the congregation. It provides a public acknowledgement that we can do nothing more for you and for your sin as the congregation But we can and must show you where your sin leads and pray to trust Jesus that He can save you. You see, God in a similar way does this for all people in Romans 1 in order to point them to the gospel. And so when Paul writes, deliver to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it does not mean that God loses control or that in some way Jesus can't save this person. It does mean that we as the church relinquish any control that we might think we have in acknowledging that only Jesus himself can save. You see, churches that refuse to practice discipline preach a false gospel by portraying a useless, fake crucifixion and proclaiming a false testimony of God in the world that says God overreacted to sin when He killed Jesus. Why should we want anything to do with God if sin isn't bad enough to deal with and love isn't strong enough to act no matter the cost? Is that not what the cross of Jesus Christ says to us? 
So the second application for us is that the assembled body of Christ holds authority and responsibility to labor for the redemption of the sinner by disciplining sin. The third application. The church practices discipline to make visible the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This third application builds on the second. The church practices discipline to make visible the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Removing a person is the church body stating, we don't forgive or cleanse from sin, but Christ already has. And we urge you to trust Him and turn back to us. When the church ignores or condones sin, arrogance produces fear and anxiety and unbelief that results in the malice and the evil that our sin creates within us. And all of these are an explicit, functional, practical denial of Christ's cross. But when the church trusts in Jesus, they obey His word by faith to act upon what He has already accomplished on the cross in sincerity and in truth. Once a person is removed from the church body, they're not shunned and damned to some kind of eternal shame. We don't have that authority. Rather, they are treated as an unbeliever ruled by Satan and no longer granted the same privileges of fellowship and of communion and of, of the gathered worship that they knew as a faithful member in covenant with the church body. And surely the actions from individual Christians within the church should align with the action of the church body in how they relate to an expelled believer. Otherwise, their own personal actions bear a false testimony. And here's why Paul rationalizes this. He says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. No matter how small your sin, Christian, it's affecting your whole life. A little bit of sin tolerance infects the whole for full damnation. And discipline, both in your personal life and congregational life, leads us to purge from any and all sin as Holy Spirit convicts so we can become more like Jesus. This third application is that the church practices discipline to make visible the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Our fourth application is this. Church discipline demonstrates faith in Christ's cross to rightly relate to all by obedience to God's word. Church discipline demonstrates faith in Christ's cross to rightly relate to all by obedience to God's word. You see, the church doesn't judge the world because unbelievers already live under God's judgment. That's why Christians proclaim the gospel in word and serve the gospel in good deeds. Christians judge sin in the church as an act of love in order to guard one another from sin's damnation. There's two wrong extremes that are often applied in this biblical judgment. First of all, Christians sometimes judge the world just to separate themselves from it. This is never a right response. But another extreme that is wrong is that Christians sometimes allow sin 
in the church so we don't have to alienate a person or cause discomfort for ourselves or for anyone else. And then no one gets removed in an effort to protect somehow this quasi-perceived perfection. And you see, actually, these two wrong extremes are produced from the same pride and arrogance. And they almost always go hand in hand. But when the church is willing, in these moments when the open sin and the the gathered congregation is considering, when the church removes people through discipline when necessary, it is an act to regard Jesus' sacrifice and righteousness for the church. And so judging sin in the church and removing a person in open sin means trusting God's Word to align the present reality of life with God's eternal reality of truth. Church discipline sometimes culminates in removal because the essence of sin is separation from God. And on earth... Separation from God's people due to habitual unrepentant sin demands removal from community with His people through discipline. In order to recognize sin's isolation and to long for the fellowship of the saints as a blessing of relationship with God. And sometimes it recognizes that the one who was living in unrepentant sin was actually an unbeliever in need of salvation. Otherwise, how condemning to minister in Jesus' name in such a way that compounds upon all who participate the very condemnation that He died to remove. And that's what happens when we refuse to acknowledge sin and not deal with it. You see, a church that refuses to practice discipline can only cultivate a congregation of people that coddle unconfessed sin in life. Disregarding biblical teaching about church discipline rejects Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the Lamb of God. Just like some disregarded God's direction to paint their doorposts with the Lamb's sacrificial blood in Egypt. And friends, death is always the result of disobedience to God's Word. Church discipline demonstrates faith in Jesus' cross, friends, to rightly relate to all by obedience to God's Word. Friends, think about this from a biblical argument, a biblical perspective. If God disciplined Christ for our sin, and He did, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 1 John 4.1, And if God disciplines the children that He loves, and He does, Hebrews 12, 6, and Hebrews 12, 10 tells us this, then the church must know that discipline is a biblical, God-ordained practice. It's never optional, but always for the health, for the well-being, and for the salvation of the church. Surely church discipline is hard, which no doubt is the reason the practice is mostly lost today. That's also why God never put the responsibility for it in the hands of one person 
or even a small number of individuals. Pastors hold a specific responsibility to lead the church through discipline, just as every covenant member also holds responsibility to participate. When we live without faith, we deny our responsibility. And when we deny our responsibility, we reject God's authority. The authority for church discipline that removes a person rests in the gathered assembly of the whole local church. The church practices discipline and spiritual covenant in order to guard the unity of Christian fellowship. Now maybe today you would ask this question. So how should I, pastor, a Christian desiring to honor God with my life, how should I respond to a message like this? Might I offer you just a couple of steps? Three, actually. First of all, I want to encourage you to close your eyes and for just a moment dare to behold a grand vision that God has for His people. Dare to envision a people that are so committed to spiritual growth and maturity, a biblical transformation in Christ's likeness, that you willingly submitted yourself to engage with them, inviting them into your life to have a knowledge of you and to speak into your life in such a way that it actually made a difference in the way that you live. What if, what if, let's play this as we dare to envision this grand vision from God. What if among the local church there was beyond that and within it a smaller group who knew you more intimately than the rest? That spent more time with you beyond only the congregational gatherings that Listen to more of your desires, that listen to more of your struggles, that listen to more of your frustrations and joys, and to where you could listen to a few others in the same way. What if among that group, they covenanted to pray with you, to laugh with you in the high moments, and to weep with you in the struggles and the hardships of life, but in all, they walked with you. Together. What if? What if you embrace this smaller group of people, not because they were perfect or not because they were better than you, but because you trusted that Jesus was working through them in and for you? And because you trusted that Jesus was working through you in and for them? You trusted Jesus that they were a, a voice of godly biblical wisdom and counsel for your life, as well as gospel reminders and, and, and gospel encouragement for you each and every day. What if, Christian, what if you had a Christian brother or sister that regularly walked by faith in righteousness and obedience to God's word, and you knew and you trusted that they would come to you, yea, even pursue you if you strayed into sin. 
And maybe you're thinking, but pastor, I don't plan to do that. However, we all know how prone our hearts are to wonder. What if today you committed to be more of the kind of Christian because of the cross of Jesus Christ that you know you need in your life and to be that even to encourage and to strengthen someone else in the church. You see, these kind of what-if scenarios, we dare to envision that they can only become reality as each of us commit to invest more deeply in one another because of the one who dared to die for each of us. I would propose to you, this is the essence of the church. This is the community that Jesus calls us into. This is the community that God envisions through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the crucifixion that He endured for our shame, and the grave that He conquered for us, and the Spirit that He has sent to inhabit us and to fill us with His power. This is the community that Jesus leads us in. You see, one reason people don't trust the church, one reason people don't trust pastors or other Christians as the church today, is because they have too little of themselves invested in the church to be able to know them and subsequently trust them. Christian, hear me. You can't be loosely connected to the church and be deeply committed to other people or to your own Christian growth and maturity. Until you humble yourself in faith and trust to follow Jesus in this way, in ever-increasing and investing relationships for spiritual transformation among the local church body. The local church will always be a limited source of spiritual well-being for you, and it will likely be a growing source of frustration to you. That's the first step that I would encourage you in. The second step that I would encourage you in in response to this sermon today is this. If we're going to get serious about becoming like Jesus, we need to do it by obeying the way Jesus said in His Word, we become like Him. And that's through spiritual covenant with God through Jesus Christ and with His people because of Jesus Christ. Friends, covenant membership is the biblical expression of the local congregation, the local church. I want to challenge you. Our navigation series at LifePoint is a seminar where we teach our core doctrine, where we teach the core identity of Christ's followers and what that means to be a congregation together. And then we explain the culture of the local church and how we operate and what our authority is and where the seed of it is in Jesus through His Word and what we as individual Christians in this congregation are responsible for to one another and how it is that the members of the church should relate to the pastors and to the elders and how the elders and pastors should relate to the members of every church. It's called our church covenant. And it outlines these things, not so one can dominate the other, but rather out of love so that we can minister to one another and we can impact the world for the mission of the goodness of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I would encourage you to attend our navigation series and to learn and then to covenant together with us to see the kingdom of God increase and expand in this world. Third, I would ask every Christian to pose these questions to yourself. First of all, am I in covenant membership, submitted to the church, and following the pastors at that church? You see, friends, the person who rejects covenant membership denies any authority in the local church. They deny any personal accountability and they deny any responsibility for other Christians. But I would tell you there is no biblical reflection nor is there an explicit teaching that allows a Christian to live in isolation from the local church. Are you in covenant membership submitted to the church and following the pastors of that church? The second question is this, is there any area of your life that you know is not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? It might be an area of your thought life. It might be an area of your attitudes towards other people. It might be an area explicitly of the actions in your life. And finally, is there any area of your life where you know you are living in sin Though you may be hiding it from people and though it may not be openly known in the church or among many people, you know. And I would say it's only a matter of time, friends, before many others will know because that sin will find you out. Are you living in open sin? I plead with you today. Whatever sin the Spirit convicts you of, do not harden your heart in arrogance or pride. But by faith and humility, turn and repent. And receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that the cross of Jesus Christ provides for us. Let me pray for us.